Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's, uh, let's see, it's Monday, and um, I'm going to do another talk about Israel. Somebody's uh, sponsoring it. I'm going to thank Solomon Candle here in Baltimore and family, uh, because it Israel's an easy thing to talk about. I'm not going to do this as a fifth podcast every week. It's easy. Because there's a ton. And uh, I was thinking about it because of what happened, uh, you know, this, because of events the past week. And my nephew, for months, he sent me a whole thing there. It's a crazy, you know, like a Tishabov ceremony they have. Must be the Satmar, you know, on uh, that they must have on Thursday. Mom, it's a whole Tishabov ceremony. How bad it all is. Uh, Israel and so forth, and anyway, it's just interesting, and I don't think people know the uh, the actual background so well. You know, I'm always interested in the history angle, so let me just say a few words about that that come uh, to mind. <clears throat> okay, here we go. Uh, last time I talked about the emergence of Zionism in the context, I think it was about the collapse of all the old. Jewish stuff among so many Jews, they gave up on the fundamentalism and nominism, the autonomous communities and the cultural insularity. This is what we mean in sophisticated terms when they simply use the term went off the derrick. That's what it means sociologically. And um, Zionism will be one attempt to sort of like keep the Jews together by at least restoring the state, the geographical contiguity and all that stuff. But there's more to it than that. And the question I'm raising today is, 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 is Israel a Jewish state? And what makes it a Jewish state? Obviously, they're not from. So you can't say it's a Jewish state in the sense that they believe in the Torah. Oops, got interrupted there. Um, but anyway, I want to raise the question, what makes it Jewish? Because it's certainly not a from state. As you know, that officially the government there is secular. They don't believe in it. It's a secular state. They don't believe in anything. But it's not so simple as that. Um, you say that, you know, Israel is a country that doesn't keep the Torah or whatever. It's not exactly true. It's actually the only country uh, that actually keeps the Torah. It's funny, in a public way. Uh, the laws in Israel are that uh, the the Shabbos is the day of rest. Uh, do people violate it? And they go, yeah, I mean, you know, so do you. Many people listening to this podcast, you know. You are Orthodox Jews, but you break this and you break that. You know, uh, that's the truth. Uh, officially, they're committed to kosher, to the Yom Tovim, that kind of stuff. Now, why did that happen? How did that happen? Uh, but that is thought. Moreover, the Gittin and the Kedushin still in the hands of the Rabbanut. So a Kohen can't get married to a Grusha over there. So it's a strange thing because, and yet, you're talking about Ben Gurion, these guys. I mean, they didn't, they were from the opposite. So what exactly happened? I'd say, take a few minutes to talk about this. <laughs> if you go back a hundred and some years, the Zionist movement started in the 1890s, there were two sides. There was A and B. There was a political Zionism and the cultural. Last time, I think, I talked mostly about the political Zionism, which was Herzl. 
and the political Zionists were the group that said like this. We just want to get a country. Matter of fact, you know, Herzl was ready to take Uganda or whatever. Give me Cucamonga, I don't care. And just get a country where we can move all the Jews that want to go there. And obviously, by definition, those Jews won't be persecuted for being Jewish by living in that country. Because everybody be Jewish. Can't have anti-Semitism, you know, um, if everybody's Jewish. Now, I know the jokes, but I mean, really, you can't. That was the basic theory. He said, you know, pretty soon some Hitler's going to come along with Schapais. And as the guy says in that famous book, when they come for us, we'll no longer be there. You know, we'll be in our own country. So, if you ask Herzl, these other guys, what will be the nature of the country? Will be religious? Will be secular? Will be this? He said, I don't know. When the people go there, they'll work it out. That's what you do in democracies. If everybody wants to vote for Shabbos as the day off, see how that goes. If everybody wants to vote for Wednesday as the day off, have a vote, see how that goes. You know, that that way. They were secular people in that regard. But they were um, mainly interested in the political side of getting a country. <clears throat> the strange part is that Herzl in his lifetime was actually offered a country. Uh, it was the wrong country, but, you know, that, that's remarkable. But on the other hand, there was also another move called cultural Zionism. And these were the people who weren't interested in the political side of things, but in the cultural side of things. And herein lies a tale, because they created the secular culture that is the culture of Israel today. There are two Jewish cultures in Israel, right? You agree with that? There's the from culture and the unfrom culture. But the unfrom culture is a Jewish culture, for better or worse, fortunately or unfortunately. It's an Ivrit. You know, you can't deny it. It's a whole culture. Now, the question is, where does this go back to? Under the impact of modernity, that I was speaking about last time, if the fundamentalism fell apart and the nomianism fell apart and this other stuff, so what replaced it? So we know, for example, in uh, the area of religion, he had a reform and conservative and stuff like that, at least in some places, like in Germany and Western Europe and in America, that alternative forms of Jewish religion emerged. Uh, certainly, before the 1800s, You'll tell somebody like Reformed Judaism, here's a Judaism, but it doesn't have the Tariq mitzvahs. They think you're nuts. But as you know, that reform started like that in the 1800s. There is, is possible. Or the conservative or whatever. But those are denominations. Those are different groups that claim to define Judaism. But that's not the totality of the reactions on the part of the Jews to modernity. Many, many Jews, probably more than the reformer conservative, simply became what we call secular. Now, secular, I always have to explain this in my classes. Secular Judaism or secular Jewry is a big deal, the, the rove, in the modern era. But there's two types of secular Jews. We use the same word, but we mean different things. So there's secular A and secular B. Secular A will be a Jew who is halachically Jewish, but has zero to do with anything Jewish. Think, for example, of a Trotsky or somebody like that. You know, that's extreme, but nevertheless. The guy was Jewish. He was just as Jewish as I am. Trotsky was also chayev to do Negel Vassar. You understand? Just as much as I am. Just as much as you are. But he had zero to do with Judaism. That was, or, or anything Jewish whatsoever. Not only, you know, he wasn't interested in religion. He wasn't interested in, any, you know, in Fiddler on the Roof. He wasn't interested in nothing. And in the modern era... Millions, this is sad, you know, millions and millions of Jews then and today are Jewish halachically. Their parents are Jewish or whatever. They have not converted to another religion. 
They have zero interest in having anything what to do to Judaism. I'm talking about people that never even go to a Seder. Zero. But they're Jewish. They're, again, I repeat, they're just as Jewish as I am. So secular Jew can mean a negative term. This is like the absence of anything Jewish, other than the fact that halachically they're Jewish. Other than that, they have nothing Jewish about them at all. Now, there's another type, secular B. And this was a group, and still is, that they say like this, we want to be Jewish, but we want an alternative Jewish culture, Jewish Judaism. We're not interested in religion. We don't believe God exists. You know, certainly not in the firm way. We don't believe in the Torah and any kind of stuff. But we want to we want to be uh, Jewish and actively Jewish and so forth. And so we want to replace it with something else. Okay? We want to replace it with something else. A different type of, not Judaism, because Judaism means a religion. These people are not interested in religion. As I said before, they could include atheists. So they wanted to have Jewish, let's say, culture. Okay? This really started with the Haskalah. This is what people don't like about the Haskalah. Because it wasn't simply that they're not from. There were a ton of people, like I just said before, who were not from and had nothing to do with Judaism. They're not Moskilim. They weren't members of Haskalah. The, the Jew in America who grows up in America and never reads anything Jewish and never has anything to do with any Jewish and never walks into a synagogue or maybe once or twice in his lifetime, you know what I mean? Extremely rare. Has nothing to do with anything whatsoever. Zero. And isn't interested in zero. He's not interested in what happens in Israel. It's not It's not on his radar screen that there was a terrorist attack yesterday. You know, nothing. Uh, and I'm talking about a guy whose wife might be... I'm not talking about somebody who intermarried. Obviously, if you intermarried, that speaks for itself. I'm talking about somebody who didn't intermarry. Both the husband and wife are Jewish. They have not any interest at all anything Jewish. Maybe they're interested in Trump. Maybe they're interested in the whales. Maybe they're interested in Roe v. Wade. I don't know. Does it? Maybe they're interested in baseball. You know, there's all kind of people out there. I know so many. It's sad, but it is what it is. Okay? Now, the Jews, other type of secular, want to create a secular Judaism, Jew, uh, well, Judaism is oxymoron, so no, there's a culture. Uh, and the, it was the first wave the Haskalah was into this to some degree. And in the second wave, and particularly the third wave of the Haskalah, which we really did with three waves. And the third one was in Russia, or Eastern Europe, as we call it. And the trouble is, it never sticks. First of all, it's okay with me. You want to create a different Jewish culture. What does it contain? And how are you going to keep them down on the farm? Why should your version of the Jewish culture be interesting to other Jews that they want to participate in it? Mechtesi. That's the problem they always had. And there are other things also, I don't want to get into it now, take us too far afield, but basically, they couldn't keep their own kids interested in it. You get it? This is almost part of the regular Haskalah profile that the guy is interested in, maybe his kids, but the grandchildren, they're just, you know, past it. They, you, know, you understand? They're Americans. They're British. They're French. They're German, whatever. Into the, into the Geisha culture, which is very impressive. Once you take away the God thing, what's so impressive about Jewish stuff? Seriously, I'm, not, I'm, I'm being funny. You understand? If you believe in God, you believe in the Torah, that itself gives it a tremendous, you know, a, a, a valence. But if you don't, so what, what, you know, why should somebody be interested, spend their life with any quality time in it? Why should they? That was the challenge of these people trying to create this new Ju Judaism. Having said that, there was a group like that, not large, especially the third Haskalah, as they call it. And what they did 
was um, attempt to create a, a, a different Jewish culture. Okay, a different Jewish culture. Now this is what we call uh, this is what we call uh, the the uh, Russian Askola. But of this group, so to put in very brief terms, the, the, the what made it Jewish was this in the Hebrew language. They thought that itself makes it Jewish, even if the content is what you and I would call secular. And uh, they, in their thought, I think they recognized that, um, what do you call it? They recognized that uh, they don't have much of a staying power in Russia because their own kids are going off to Derek. I think Haram's kids intermarried, things like that, you know. Uh, you know, you know what I mean, that sort of thing. Um, anyhow, they came up with the idea that there has to be some country, like we would call today a desert island, Gilligan's Island, where everybody speaks Hebrew. And then if you have that artificial thing, that alone will make it possible to, um, you know, um, that itself will, 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 uh, will make it possible. Somebody's trying to contact me. I can't do that. That would make it possible to 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 perpetuate this culture. That was the theory behind it. You understand? That was the theory behind it. Now, already in the late eighteen hundreds, they could see, as I said before, it ain't going to last so great in Russia uh, for all kind of reasons. But let me just tell you right now: the Russian culture is extremely powerful. And it's very impressive, and it was in the early, in the late eighteen hundreds. That's when Russian culture was very impressive, you know, from Tchaikovsky to Zhagalev to this, that, and the other, or Bakhtin, whatever. And the young people who were going to school in Russia were drawn into that stuff. And they're not interested in anything Jewish. So the cultural Zionists said, well, we have to make colonies in Palestine and turn that into an artificial Hebrew-speaking situation. And that's where we'll be able to produce our plays, our novels, our newspapers, and all the other secular stuff. So it'll be Jewish, on the other hand, uh, it won't be religious. Okay, in their minds, they thought they're saving Judaism. They're very arrogant. You understand, Jewish intellectuals, especially stupid intellectuals, are very arrogant. That's the way it goes. I've seen it all my life. Jewish stupid intellectual, very arrogant. They have nothing to be arrogant about, but they don't realize that. And so, the people I'm talking about were very often people who had no education. You listening to me right now had more of a formal education than they did. But that's not how they saw it. Fine. Now, um, let me say this. They did succeed. It's a long story, and I'm not going to do it now. But they were successful. Because from the time they set up the first Zionist colonies in Israel, you know, Zichron, Yaakov, and Benjamin, and Petach Tikva, and so forth and so on, all across the place, you know, the, the, the schooling and the uh, general culture was a Haskalah one, and uh, an Ivrit thing, and it wasn't from. If you go, I remember years ago, I did one of my trips to Israel. I told you where I'm planning to do one in November. I mentioned that already. So one year, usually I do themes. You know, I just haven't decided which theme. So one year we did a, a trip to Israel, and one of the themes was the first Aliyah, 1880s and all that. Which, by the way, is extremely interesting from the Shemitah perspective. I am thinking possibly... When we go in November, even though Shemitah will be over, but it won't really be over because that's when you get the, the pay, you know, that's when you get the food from the previous year. You know the problem with that. So uh, one of the places called Mazkeret Batya, where there was a whole strike to keep Shemitah 
against the, the Rothschild. It's not so business. It's actually very interesting. But I haven't decided yet. But be that as it may, from that Kufa, you had a situation in which, called the first Aliyah, in which the question was, what was the schooling going to be like in the, in the settlements? And by the time the process was over, it's a long, complicated story, it was a non-from schooling. You understand? A writ non-from schooling. So this is creating, you know, the the, the, the Hebrew-speaking Chilini culture they have in Israel today. It's the third Haskalah morphed into cultural Zionism, as we call it here. <laughs> Fine, let it be. But at that point, the question among the cultural Zionists was, what should the new Jewish stuff look like, the new Jewish culture? Should it divorce itself from the old? Or should it be a continuation of the old, just in a non-from way? What should be its attitude towards the old values? This is a big fight in the third Haskalah, and especially the early cultural Zionism. You had people who said we have to totally drop any connection with Yiddishkeit whatsoever. Excuse me, zero. And you had some people who were nuts beyond the wall. Uh, Yosef Chaim Brenner, people like that, they, you know, they want to have, I don't know what, you know, some new religion, totally divorced, Jewish culture totally divorced from anything Jewish. Some of you may be familiar that there were a few nuts after Israel became the state wanted to call themselves the Canaanim. I kid you not. But they Canaan because they said, we're not Jewish. We identify with the Canaanites. <laughs> I'm serious. There were people like it. Okay? So there's a strain, one strain in the Chilonim, which is completely separate and divorce yourself from anything part of the Jewish past. Because it's all bad, it's all negative, it's all stupid. All religious stuff is all bad, negative, stupid. Therefore, why should we have a shakas to it? Ivrit is the only thing we have in common. But we should create new holidays, if anything, and new uh, values, new this, that, and the other. You know, as far as they're concerned, you know, the day off can be Sunday, could be Monday. You know, so there's nothing special about Saturday, Bechlal. That's one way of doing it. And there were some powerful, uh, you know, writers behind this. But the predominant, but that's not what took. The predominant form of the cultural Zionism was, you know, more like Achadam, these other guys, Bialik and so forth, who themselves actually came from, from families. And therefore they said like this, we should try to create a new culture on the, on, on the ruins of the old. You understand? Use the old ideas. Yes, the Shabbos should be a special day, but we should have our own ceremonies for Shabbos. Forget the 39 Malachas, that's nothing. But we should have our own ceremonies. You get it? Kashrus, I don't know what they said about Kashrus. I mean, I know, I remember the Bialik, for example, would eat Trafe even when he had opportunity to eat kosher. I mean, you know, that's, that's who these guys were. Uh, but the idea was you want to make, a, 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 let's say, shall I say, a new form of Shabbos, a new form of Pesach, uh, a new form of a Seder. And a new form, you know, take the old ideas and somehow connect them with them. That became the dominant theme in the cultural Zionism. You understand? Especially 100 years ago in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, around the time Israel became a state, that was a rage. Now, it didn't, I mean, it was silly, and it didn't last. And today it's gone. All these things last for five minutes are gone. And uh, it didn't have much of a valence. But for a while it did, for a generation or two it did. For those people, it worked for them. This was the background of the cultural Zionism that emerged as the culture of the Yeshuv, of the Jewish community in Palestine, as it was forming, especially in the 20th century. Let's say, for argument's sake, from 1900 to 1948.
Okay, that's the way it went. I would add that, um, how should I put it? Uh, in the years 1919 to 1947 to 48, let's say, so because of the Balfour Declaration and the, and the deal that the British cut with the Zionist organization to recognize the Zionist organization as the representative of the Jewish people, that the embodiment of Claudia Yisrael, which was quite a achievement for the Zionist organization, because they sure as heck didn't represent hardly anybody, but they were taken by the government to do so, uh, and international law was recognized by that, it still is, so they called it the Jewish Agency, that's the World Zionist Organization. So the Jews in um, Palestine set up what they called uh, Knesset Israel, Asifar HaNivcharim, they had names like that, and made, they made a Knesset. And the idea was the British let them have a Knesset to rule themselves in, in certain inyanim. I'll give you an example. The most important would be Chinuch. You know, we the British are not going to pay any money to run this country. We want to save as much money as we can and make as much money as we can. So we'll leave it to the Jews and the Arabs. You run your own schools. And the Arabs, Taka, didn't make any schools, which was a mistake on their part. But the Zionists set up immediately, as much as they could, everywhere, a whole public school system, and even some high schools. You understand? Eventually, one university. Now, these were talking about Mamlakti, meaning secular, uh, non from okay? Very often anti from because there was a socialist uh, strain of the schools. I'm talking about the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, into the 50s. Uh, so if you're socialist Zionist, that means you're Marxist. Marx is a, Karl Marx is opposed, Bishita, to any religion, called Hermit Judaism. So this is what you're talking about. Um, this is, I mean, the Frum could make their own schools, but the main money went to the non-Frum. You understand? Matter of fact, the religious Zionists, the Mizrahi, and all the, they were always fighting in the 1920s, 30s to get some funding for their schools. I mean, that was the politics at that time. Okay? And in these schools, they nurtured the cultural Zionism. And, you know, you didn't learn Gemara and all that kind of stuff. You learned... You know, Bialik and Akhanam and uh, the, the poems and the Zionist version of history and so forth and so on, right? You learn the Bible as literature, etc. This is what the masses were, were uh, getting. Uh, now, I'll say it again. If you wanted to, you didn't have to go. You could make your own school. But, the, you know, the ones that were supported and run by the Knesset Israel, by the official Jewish community, by the Zionists, that's what it was. Uh down to 1948. Now listen closely. The Haredim were locked out. They weren't part of this Knesset. Today they are, but at that time they weren't. They were locked out by their own refusal. The Zionists wanted to join, just like the Israelis today want the Agoda in, 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 in the government and all that. They want them. But the Agoda at that time had a very strong, uh, what shall I say, uh, I'll use this terminology. I could have had this very strong Natur character type contingent. Not exactly, but something like that. And uh, the, uh, and they were pushing, have no recognition whatsoever of the Zionists. So that meant that issues about culture and immigration, who gets to come and who doesn't get to come, were on the hands of Zionists. And there was no Haredi lobby in the Knesset at that time to try to push the, the Haredi point of view because they just weren't there by, by choice. They were boycotting it. 
Okay? And that's why 99% of the people who were allowed to make Aliyah in the 20s and 30s and 40s under the British were not from, and at the most, it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Mizrahi religious Zionists, and very often of the left wing of that movement. The type of people who would make a religious kibbutz and that sort of thing. This is the politics of what they call the Gucci Aliyah, where they wanted the right type of people to come in. And the Haredim didn't like it, but, but they couldn't do nothing about it. All they could do was protest. And the more they cussed out the Zionists, the more the Zionists hated them. And therefore, it was a counterproductive and so forth and so on. Okay. Now, uh, nevertheless, as I said, but the dominant theme in the cultural Zionism was more the Achadam type, which is, we want to respect Jewish tradition. We just want to do it in a non-from way. We want to have Jewish institutions and Jewish calendar events and Jewish cultural concepts. We want to do it in a non-from way. That's what they pushed. So they wanted to reinvent the Shabbat with the Onik Shabbat, and they wanted to reinvent the Shalosh Regalim, and they, I mean, they tried, and they wanted to reinvent all kinds of stuff like that. You get what I'm saying? So they take the form, but they fill it with a different content. That was the general trend. Did it have any long-standing? It didn't have any long-standing. As we know today, once the uh, 50s were gone, you know, this kind of thing just fell apart. That's what happened in retrospect. This is why the Chazanish said to Ben-Gurion, he said, you're empty ship, you know, we're full ship. I mean, that's the famous story. He said, you're empty ship. But the Chazanish was saying, this whole culture stuff you're doing is it has no key. You know, in other words, it's not even going to last among you. Get it? But I want to emphasize something very strongly. They did create a culture. That's very different than what happened in Chutzlar, say, for example, in America. It's an important distinction I'm, I'm, I'm drawing here. What's the non-from thing in America? Reform, conservative, that kind of thing. Different religious denominations. What's the non-from in Israel? The cultural science, or the chilonim, as we call it. This Hainuach. In America, the reform and conservative made bupkis, nothing. what they do? They made nothing. They just simply created a whole set of synagogues to have services, you know, whatever. And that's it. They didn't make any kind of culture. It's notorious that nobody, I mean, that that, that, that among the Balabatim, certainly of the reform movement, even the rabbi, but uh, the Balabatim reform movement, and 99% of the Balabatim conservative movement, it's, they knew nothing about Judaism. They certainly can't speak of writ the way an Israeli colony would do so. You know, so this is the f- big failures of these movements, even unless she taught some. If they're honest, when they're honest, they'll admit it. You know, if they're not doing a public uh, interview and all. But, if, you know, if they're honest, they'll admit it. You understand? Uh, so they created nothing, zero. That's why the Trump don't have any opposition, you know, not really. Uh, in Israel, they created something. There's a whole society, there's a yesh, not an ain. And this whole society is a secular Jewish culture. I just want to be clear about that, Okay. Now, um, then came this in 1948, and Israel became a state. Now it gets really interesting, because um, at that time, the Zionist movement very much wanted the Agoda and those types to, to, to join it, because here they're trying to make a case to the world that they're having a Jewish state. If the Frum Jews tell them that they're not Jewish, then the Arabs will use that against them to say the whole Zionism is baloney, and then they won't get a state. So they needed 
as they perceived it, Ben-Gurion and Weitzman and so forth, they needed the support of the Frum who say, this is a Jewish state. Even though, what shall I tell you, the Haredim didn't really hold the Jewish state, but it's a kind of a Jewish state. It's going to have Jews in it. And so they went along. Listen, it is a fact that the Aguda, for example, signed the Declaration of Independence. I don't know if you know that or not. I myself was in the, uh, what do you call it? Independence Hall, I guess, in Tel Aviv. You know, they make like a museum. I took a trip there once where Ben-Gurion signed the Declaration of Independence on a Friday afternoon, May 14th, 48. It's just a Yom Ha'atzmut, you know, made for, hey, you are. And they have that table all set up the exact way it was at that time, you know, with all the different representatives of the groups. It's funny, in the middle, and they have place cards in the middle is where Ben-Gurion stood and read the Declaration of Independence. Mom is right next to him across the table, like like at a chasna, exactly across the table. It was a good, <laughs> I remember, Mayor David Levenstein, who was a relative of Mosey Truoff here. You know, um, it says, no, they, they signed it. You get it? They're part of the the uh, Yeshuv, as it is. Which means that their Gedolim at that time, whoever was in the Torah Torah, said, give him the green light. I mean, that's what that means. Okay? That's exactly why the Torah character considers the Agoda a dangerous left-wing movement. I repeat, a dangerous left-wing movement. Okay? But the Agoda did. Now, what that meant was that now that you're going to have a state of Israel, then the Agoda will participate in the elections. There's a radical change from before. Because now it's not the move, now it's not elections for a Knesset of Zionism, it's, a, it's, a, it's an elections for a Knesset of an actual country. So if it's a country, so the Agoda's like this for a country, we, we're interested in being represented. Okay? Now, um, they had the first elections. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. If you look at the first elections, okay, if it looks at the first elections, um, the you can Google this. Just Google the first Knesset. Just Google it. You'll see a great map because the arithmetic tells you everything. The Knesset is 120. So in order to form a government, you need 61 because that way you have a majority. Anytime you have a vote, majority rules. If you have 61... It's like owning 51% of a corporation, you know what I mean, of a business. You have 51%, you control it. So you want to have 61 um, seats in uh, supporting you. Let's say me. Let's say I want to be prime minister and pass a law saying everybody has to wear a gray coat. If I can get 61 people elected and they'll support me, we pass a law like that. So you look at the first results and you see that Ben-Gurion had the biggest party in my pie. He got 46 that's a lot less than, than 61, 46. So for him to run a country, have a government democratically and have a country in which every time he does something, he has a majority of votes in the Knesset of 120, he's got to have the magic number of 61 at least. Now, if you look at that map, you'll see Ben-Gurion had 46. And really, 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 if we want to be honest and tell the truth, he had another two votes because there was something called the Arab Party, which was baloney at that time. It's not like the Arab Party today, which is an Arab Party. At that time, it was a stooge of Ben-Gurion because the army uh, was occupying the Arab villages and the army said, vote for Ben-Gurion or else. So you had an extra two. So let's say you got a total of 48. 48 is still less than 61. Now, he could have done the following. He could have turned um, to Menachem Begin, who had 14, so 48 and, and 14 give you 62. They hate each other. No way, Ben-Gurion. He'd rather drop dead than do that at a, at a personal center. 
Okay, so put that out of the way. Wait a minute, there's something called Mapam. So the Ben-Gurion's party was called Mapai. They had 46. There was another party called Mapam with 19. Hey, 46 and 19 gives you 65. Bingo. If the Iker by the Zionists was to be anti-from, if that was a, an Iker by them, then that's what he would have done. Because then they would have said like this. We'll have 46 Mapai, 19 Mapam, we all agree the country should be secular and not from. There should be no law anywhere closing anything on Shabbos. There should be no law anywhere saying that everything in the state has to be kosher if it's a public affair. There's no law anywhere that says that we have to give a penny to from schools. As a matter of fact, we could even make a law that there are no from schools. You know, I mean, no, they had the ability to do that if that was an icker by them. And we're certainly not going to give a penny for, uh, you know, schools, base yakos, anything along those lines. Let them choke on no funds. You get it? If they could have definitely made a law that there'll be no rabbinut and all marriage will be, meaning any legal marriage will be secular and all divorce will be secular. They could pass a law like that. And believe me, most of the children more than that. They still do. Right? They still do. In other words, they could have made it mamish, you know, a, a country with no formal connection to Judaism at all, the way the Brenner and the other guys wanted to do it. They could have passed a law saying Sunday will be the day off, or Monday, you know, they could do whatever they want. But that's not what he chose to do. First of all, it's a funny story, but Ben-Gurion and his party had like a weird aspect to them. Ben-Gurion wanted a right-wing foreign policy and a left-wing domestic policy, economic policy. His party was a socialist party, so as socialists, they believed the government should control the main engines of economic um, enterprise, the big factories and all that kind of stuff. I say again, the government should control all that, not private business. Uh, so he was a socialist. And on the other hand, when it came to foreign policy, he was anti-Russia. He was pro-America. That's just who Ben-Gurion was. He said there's a Cold War going on. It's Stalin versus Truman. Israel sides with Truman because Israel is a democratic free country. If the Soviets win, we're all screwed. We, you know, we, we want freedom. Now, the Mapam party was a party that said like this. We want a, uh, a socialist domestic policy. We also want a socialist foreign policy. We want a pro-Stalin, a pro-Russia foreign policy. And on this disagreement, they and Ben-Gurion could not get together. They got like a divorce. They couldn't get together. And Gordon said, well, no way have these guys together with me in cabinet. They'll be pushing to support Stalin. I hate Stalin. There was another way to go. You could have gotten together what they call the General Zionists and another group. That might put you over the top of progressives. That was 12 uh, and one or two more. But they were private businessmen. People who owned stores and grocery stores and bigger stores. So they wanted a pro-American foreign policy, but they also wanted a capitalist domestic policy, free enterprise, the government, like a Republican. You know, the government should get its hands out of my, 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 my business. And Ben-Gurion wanted the opposite. So basically, he couldn't hook up with any party which would allow him to do what he wanted to do, which is have this funny combination of a right-wing foreign policy and a left-wing domestic and economic policy. At that point, he looked at the Frum, who had at that time what they call Chazit Datit, 
which is a religious front. And I don't know if you know this or not. I mean, some of you, I'm sure, obviously know it, but many don't. In the 1949 elections, the Agud and the Mizrahi were in one party. Get it? Because they joined together for one list. So you voted whatever you voted. Let's say, uh, I'll just call it Gimel. I don't know what day it was at that time. You voted Gimel. Gimel means you're voting for a combination of the Agud and the Mizrahi. Okay? Now, um, what do you call it? What happened was that uh, they got 16. Interesting. 16 is like this. 46 plus 16 gives you 62. That's enough. Especially you throw in those two heirs, which really are stooges, is a 64. I'm in business, said Ben-Gurion. So, let me ask you, the listener, what was the position of the front parties on a right-wing or a left-wing foreign policy? They had no position. <laughs> they don't care. What is the position of the front parties on whether you should have a capitalist or a socialist economy? They don't care. Not really. You know, It's not an acre by them. The only thing they cared about was getting money for their mostos. We want to have the legalization of yeshivas, basiakos. We want government support for that uh, to whatever degree we can uh, obtain and so forth and so on. We were room to breathe as a firm thing. If it's the Mizrahi, they say we want that, uh, you know, um, I'm saying this again, the Mizrahi. They say we want to stop the buses on Shabbos. That's already there should be religious legislation to some degree. So, as far as Ben-Gurion was concerned, he considered that a small price. You know, he himself was an atheist, but he said like this, the same way they don't care whether it's a, a right-wing or a left-wing foreign policy domestic, I don't care, you know, if the government will support, yeah, yeshiva, not a yeshiva, money to punish, not money to punish, heck with it, you understand? But the thing is like this, but if they'll join my, gab, my cabinet, my government, I will have 62 seats, and I can do whatever I want, and they won't interfere. The only thing I do is I have to pay the price to, you know, support to one degree or another their institutions and all the rest of it. This is how and when he made the famous deal that they wouldn't draft yeshiva guys, and they would allow funding for basiakos and things of that nature, okay? Now, uh, as a result, as we all know, this kind of grew like Topsy, and here we are 75 years later, and the yeshiva world like gigantic, and the government f m m funding for it is humongous, which is of course not what Ben Gurion had in mind. But we, end but nevertheless, what I want to bring out is Ben Gurion wouldn't have done it if he was, if if being anti-religious was his ichor. It was a feature of who he was, but it wasn't what really moved him. Uh, maybe from people want to hear that, maybe they don't want to hear it. You know, everybody builds up their own image, their own mythology, and so forth. But it wasn't the big deal with him. He himself was an atheist. And as far as he's concerned, he'd be interested there should be a new Jewish culture. But if there's the old, those who want to have the old Jewish culture can have that too. As long as they don't try to take over the country, you see? He didn't want a clericalist state. Uh, and he also wanted peace. Uh, you know, he was afraid to have to be a split between the from and the not from in a serious way. It could split the country and be and bring down the state. Because the Arabs will move in if the Jews start fighting each other. He wasn't necessarily wrong. And I would even say that for the, he persuaded himself for the first five, six, seven years of Israel that somehow or other they can make some kind of a contract between the from and the not from um, how to sort of live together. 
like a series of Tanayim. But that wasn't possible. Because what that would mean was like this. I won't bother you if you're Shomer Shabbos, and you won't bother me if I'm a Chal Shabbos. The Frum cannot say that. Now, I don't necessarily mean you have to go and physically do something, but to sign a, a deal like that would mean there are two ways of doing Judaism. We choose to do the Shabbos way. You choose to do the Mechal Shabbos way. As a matter of principle, the Frum, the Haredim especially, cannot agree to that because they don't agree that it's a viable option to have something Jewish which invites Mechal Shabbos. I'll say it again. That doesn't mean that I'm going to go and fight somebody. Uh, I'm not going to get physical, but... Um, but I can't agree that there are two ways of doing Saturday in a very American way. I do my thing, you do your thing. I keep Shabbos my way, you keep Shabbos, or don't your way. They couldn't agree to that. This is the famous story of uh, the Chazanish, where the Ben-Gurion went in 53, was it, or 54? Last year, the Chazanish's life. He traveled to uh, B'nai Brak, you know, with Yitzhak Navon. They went to see the Chazanish, but you know, it was a pointless meeting. Because the Chazanish, you know, wasn't going to do what he wanted, which was, let's come out with a signed agreement in both of our parts, that the Chilonim will act this way, and the Charedim will act this way. Chazanish wasn't going to do that. You understand? Uh, he, in fact, he never even agreed to the legitimacy of Israel. He wasn't that good in it exactly. But um, these issues, therefore, you know, go back to the heart of what I'm talking about today. So, the sensibilities that moved the Mapai guys, the Ben-Gurion guys, the other ones, to agree to all these concessions is something very Jewish. Because Ben-Gurion even told people, if you re if you know the interviews he gave, I don't think most people do, he says, you know, I don't like these from all the rest of it, but they look like my grandfather. <laughs> like, they are Jewish. They're very Jewish. We're the ones that are trying to create something new. I hear where they're coming I don't agree with them, but he says, I hear where they're coming from. So he was not one of these uh, Yosef Chaim Brenner types. Now, um, these Jewish sensibilities, therefore, that survive in the Chiloni culture are very fascinating. And it means that you have a pint, you definitely, definitely have a Pintalayid in the middle of all this Chiloni type of culture. It just expresses itself in unusual ways. Right? Expresses itself in unusual ways. Now, there are many examples you can give it, but I'm just going to two that come to mind. I just, the other day, I have to give some talk somewhere. And so I pulled out, I brought with me from Hopkins, one of the books. You know, they have all these books in the Mossad and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, I read them all. I forget which one I pulled out over there. You know, from years ago. And, you know, the history of the Mossad. You get it? The history of Mossad. And when Issa Harel took over, you know, they had their uh, shakedown crews. They made a lot of mistakes in the first years of the Mossad. Eh, that's what happens. You know, you, you start any organization, let alone a spy organization, you're going to make your, your mistakes. Um, and there were a number of occasions where Jews were accused of spying for the British and the Arabs, and maybe they did, and they shot them, especially in the 48 war. But when the war was over, so the people took over, they said like this, this is just wrong. From now we're going to have a understood policy. We do not kill Jews. You understand? And uh, if somebody's a spy or a traitor, this and the other, put them in jail. But, you know, they're not going to kill him. Why, why don't you kill Jews? The guy's a traitor. Why don't you kill him? We don't kill Jews. Hitler killed enough. You, you, you hear that Svara? It's a, it's a very Jewish sensibility. Right? 
Maybe you appreciate, maybe you don't appreciate. And by the way, once in a while, very rarely, you know, they broke it. There is a case or two here, three or four cases where they broke it. But Derek Claw, that's, that's, that was a big deal with him. As a matter of fact, the guy who became the head of the Mossad, Issa Harel, who was not a from guy at all, uh, the Romanish, I believe, he, when he was sufficiently old school that he said like this is I'm not gonna have any girl spies that, that you know go sleep around with the with the enemy. Also, you know, we don't use Jewish girls for this. Uh, he got Goyish girls. <laughs> you know That's where where where's that coming from? You know, these are Jewish Yiddish sensibilities. You understand? It's it, it's very interesting. Another one is this business that I mentioned the other day where they'll go to all these lengths to uh, bring back dead bodies and bury them. I don't even think they know where it's coming from themselves. It's a very Jewish sensibility by, by us in the from culture to give a, a, a Jew a, a proper burial, like I mentioned the other day in one of my podcasts, is a very big deal. You understand? That was the whole Tupav and everything. It's a very big deal. Uh, it's uh, And the, the, the army and these other guys, they absorbed it without knowing like where it's coming. This is... This is the flaring up within the heart, the depths, if you wish, of the healing consciousness of certain Jewish values, even though they trample on other ones. Um, there's another one, and I'll conclude with this. And I think it's a great story. It's from the Yom Kippur War, where, uh, you know, we were surprise attacked. And one of the places that was the worst disaster for the Jews, for the Israelis, was in Mount Hermon, where they had a big listening post with all kind of high-tech um, listening uh, devices. It's in 1973, of course. And the latest stuff from the CIA. And it's very high up, so you can listen to the whole Syria. And they were listening to the whole Syria. And they had top-secret stuff there. And they had, you know, specialists, Israeli specialists, in decoding and listening in and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't protected. And, you know, they were warned, you know, this place is, like, exposed to an enemy attack. It was a big case of, of a Shia, you know, but it happened. And so the Syrians made a surprise attack. I won't go through all the details. And they conquered the whole mountain, and they took everybody prisoner, and they captured a belt of high-tech equipment and secret codes and priceless information and so forth and so on. So it was just a mechdal, as they call it, a disaster. And there was a guy, I read this now, there was a guy that they caught that went Israeli who was like a weirdo. He like a certain Asperger's, I guess you'd say. And, you know, he had a certain genius for decoding and stuff like that. And he was blessed or cursed with a photographic memory. I mean, the guy was weird. He remembered everybody, you know, if he saw uh, the license plates, he remembered the license plates, you know what I mean? It was like that. And he was good at whatever he was doing and they caught him. And they, you know, the Syrians had their best interrogators and the Soviets, and they're excellent in psyching out people because a good interrogator does not use torture. I don't know if you know that or not, right? A good interrogator does need to use torture. It's, be it's better without it. When you see the torture, it's either that they're uh, uh, not really professional or they're sadist from the culture. I remember Stalin, for example, one point says, I want you to torture people that are in the prison camps or, or in, the, in the jails. And they said, no, we'll get better information with no torture. He says, I'll be I'd like, like to torture them. You get it? You know, this is a, because he was a sicko. But from a strictly professional point of view, 
They have expert interrogators and they can get you in a conversation. And by the time you're finished, you're instantly putting their hands. I'm not going to bring the exact dome and milsa milsa, but I'm not the smartest guy in the world. If I go hear a pitch, you know, once or a couple times in my life, I was was in Ocean City somewhere else, you know, they say, if you go to this, this place, and you listen, they try to sell you an apartment, you know, a condo, and if you listen to the old pitch, you'll get a face of uh, some prize. I remember I once went uh, to uh, to listen pitch with my wife was there. That was a good thing because they said they're going to give uh, as, a, as, a, as a prize a uh, barbecue grill. And and one of my students was getting married. I said, I'll get this and give him for the barbecue grill for, for the prize. Hold on one second. Anyway, so I listened to the pitch. The guy, I was silly putty. By the time the guy finished, I was ready to sign a dotted line and buy a condo. So my wife had to physically hold me back. You know, the guys who are good at this are good at this. And so these Syrian and Russian interrogators sized the guy up as an Asperger's and whatever it is. And they also realized that with his memory, he, he memorized all the secret codes back at headquarters. And basically, he was in a position to do unbelievable damage because of his, the gift of his memory and his knowledge to Israel. And they played him like a fiddle because they were professionals. And he sang like a bird because they convinced him that Israel had been destroyed. They did a whole elaborate scenario that Israel had lost. It was a successful surprise attack. He didn't know better. And, you know, he went into a depression and he spilled the whole beans. I don't remember all the details. He spilled the whole beans. Mind you, the guy had to keep us through God. He was a religious guy. Uh, so let's put it this way. What he did was one of the big security disasters of any country, let alone in the history of Israel. He, this guy may have been the worst walking mine, walking bomb in the history of Israel. I mean, he got so many, you know, spies and agents betrayed and so many codes and so much. You can just imagine. It was really terrible, okay? It was really terrible. He did unbelievable damage. Now, it was, you know, uh, like I say, they played him. But nevertheless, he did unbelievable damage. I don't know how they got over it. You can look it up. You'll find it somewhere in the... In, in, online, probably even videos, I think. Uh, and then, when the war was over, see, he got a prisoner exchange. He gave him back to Israel. The Israeli army was so angry at him, and the general said like this, for this is above and beyond, the guy should be shot or put in a desert island to the end of his life or something. In other words, which, by the way, they're right. He did crazy amount of damage to to Israel and to the Jewish people. It is true. You understand? I mean, he was in possession of unbelievable information, and he, and he sang like a bird. He did terrible things to the Jewish people. I'm telling you, they wanted to give him a, you know, in, in, in under military rules, they could shoot him. And Golda Meir was the prime minister at that time, and she was totally not from. She used to say like this, Anilo Tzamba Yom Kippurim. <laughs> she was zero. But she said like this, she says, let him go. How can you let him go? He says, he is the only child of Holocaust survivors. His parents lived in Haifa. He said, I'm not, well, we're not going to do that to them, that's all. After what they've been through, then we're not going to do that to them. We're not going to take this kid and put him in jail for the rest of his life. Well, he deserves it. You know, that is true. And if it was a regular country, if it was Russia, they'd shoot him. In America, they'd shoot him. That's true. This is Israel. You see? We're just not going to, he's going to live the rest of his life knowing the damage he did. And Camarno, you see? We're just going to move past this. And we'll do the best we can to clean up the damage. And I, I think I saw this in a video someone was, and the, first of all, the guy had a heck of a life, but what else, I'll say this. He lived in Haifa, he got married, 
He had a job driving Agate bus. You know, I think he's retired now. I remember he had tightness on the generals. Why'd you put a guy like me in the front line? Which is true. But nevertheless, now, where does that come from? That's a very Jewish sensibility. You know? He says, the parents went through the war. They went through the Shoah. They suffered enough. We're not going to add to it. Even though the guy deserved it. Right? This is what I mean when I say they're in the Chiloni culture, many little nuggets of traditionalist identity, what we call Pintaliyid. And it's very interesting to discern these. Now, you can't always rely on them, and you know, maybe in Golda Meir's generation, and more than I don't know, but but they are there. And as far as I'm concerned, the trick is like to cultivate them more than anything else. Now, you just have to get over the fact that in this day and age, you are not going to make a lot of people from the 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 cure of efforts are great, and I'm serious. And every person you get is a, is a, is, a, is a diamond, and uh, you know all that is true. But Orthodox Judaism simply is not attractive to a rove of the Jewish people today. If things change, as far as I can tell, anyway, it's all I can ever say. If things change, it's a demography thing. Notice it may happen in the next thirty years. The non-from will just all drift out, intermarry, and disappear or have no children and disappear, and the Frum, because they have a lot of children, will then become the new majority. That's not the same thing as saying we won by being by persuading or being Makar of the non-Frum. That will not happen. Now, I'll say it again. A little bit it happens, and everything you do is great. You know, it's really, it's excellent. That's an understatement. But don't fool yourself. And if you talk to real professionals out there, talk to a real, uh, you know, Chabad Shlich or somebody like that, or, or some guy, They'll tell you, or guys in the front lines, and I deal with some of them, you know, some of the podcasts, it's tough out there, and you have to redefine success differently. You can't say, how many people do you make Shomer Shabbos? You say, I made so and so many people a little more Jewish, and maybe they picked up a mitzvah or so, and it's tough, you understand? Um, and, you know, for some people to pick up a little mitzvah here, it's a big victory also. But if you think that you're going to get... 80% or whatever the Jews now who don't give a darn about anything and, you know, turn them around and all of a sudden they're going to become people who are uh, Shabbos, Kosher, Tars, Mishpacha. Look, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't see it anywhere. You understand? It looks more like the other way I said, which is a different type of victory altogether. It's a very different sort of thing. So um, these are just a couple ideas that go through my mind at this time of the year. We're talking about Israel, Yom HaShoah, Yom this, Yom that, uh, which I think people don't have so clear in their mind. And anyway, I shared the way I understand it. And once again, I want to thank Solomon Candle for sponsoring this. And people, there's a lot more to talk about, but I just can't do it all. I can't do it all at one time, obviously. And so if somebody's interested, they'll let me know. Uh, but with that, I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.